0: Well, good, morning. good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt and I have a joy and honor being the campus pastor here and uh, I just want to say thank you for filling out those cards. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, like David said, we're not going to sell it um, unless, you know, maybe. I don't know, I'm just kidding. We're not going to sell it. Uh, but one of the reasons this is really helpful for us is I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to make an important phone call to somebody and I get we're sorry, this number is no longer in service. And I um, have to go through the pigeons to figure out how to get a hold of you. But, um, hey, we really appreciate that, and uh, thank you for that. I also want to give a shout-out to uh, Denise Russell. Uh, is in the back corner here. Everybody, just give a shout-out. I'll tell you who she is, but she deserves a shout-out first. Uh, Denise is the director of our kids' ministry for all of Bridgewater. So she oversees uh, the kids' ministry at all five of our locations. She does a great job resourcing, encouraging uh, our teams and our, our champion here, Danny and Adam Oakley. I think they're nine or 10 days overdue with baby number three. So she's here today helping out. So if you see her, um, say hi, uh, give her a warm, also welcome. We just so appreciate everything she does for us here. I also want to give another shout out, lots of cool things happening. This weekend we had the IF gathering, uh, which is a women's conference this last weekend, Yep. And uh, I personally just wanted to thank Ashley and the whole team. Uh, it was just an incredible time. I was not invited, but I heard it was an incredible time um, and built up, and we we're just excited to see the fruit from that. I want to thank Ashley and the team uh, for that. Also, I, <laughs> it's a busy Sunday. Uh, if you guys can be praying uh, this Sunday down on our Tuncanic campus, uh, they are voting on their next uh, potential campus pastor. Uh, so we'll know by the end of the day uh, whether that's moving forward. So we appreciate uh, your prayer for that. All right, 5,000 announcements over. First Corinthians chapter Three. We, we are in week four of the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you've missed the first couple of weeks, you've missed an uncomfortable couple of weeks. Um, because the book of 1 Corinthians just gets into the reality and the mess of life. And we said this is a messed up church blessed by God. And, and though this church existed 2,000 years ago, uh, the letter Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, is writing back to them three years after he planted it is incredibly relevant for us today. We don't believe the Bible is just an ancient text. We believe it is the living word of God, which means when we read it, it applies to us here today. So we've been working through some um, difficult and a little bit, um, shall I say, aggressive conversations And I would like to say it's going to get easier, Um, but we're going to get into one of the hardest chapters to uh, deal with in the Bible next week. So come back for that. It'll be a good time. Uh, But I want to ask you a question before we get into it this morning, because it will help you kind of understand the text and uh, figure out where we're going to go. Um, If I were to ask you, define for me somebody who is spiritually immature. A baby Christian or, or somebody totally new to the faith. Now, don't answer out loud, but if you're in a conversation with them and you're like, oh, that person's, they must be new. Right, they just must be new. What What are the signals? What are the metrics? What are the things that come to your mind that would define that person? Think about it. Stay focused to me, but but think about it as we go. So it, uh, we'll we'll come back to that. In recap, though, uh, week one we looked at really just this idea of unity. There are so many things Paul could have addressed, but he went after the disunity that was happening in the church, and it was largely over um, loyalty to kind of overinflated personalities and leadership. They said, "Well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas," and it was basically just all these leaders that they were saying, we belong to this camp, so we're special. And it was creating all these divisions throughout the the church. And Paul says in the beginning of the book, he says, there should be no division among you. You should be perfectly united in mind and thought because of what he's going to go on to say at the end of chapter one, which is basically, you have no shot at goodness and righteousness apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the cross, there was no way any of us are making it through. It is only by grace. Therefore, when we look at the people around us, when we interact with people, we need to understand that there is a currency of grace that we operate off of. Not a currency of you did this and I did this, but of grace. Because when Jesus looked at you, he threw away your record because of the death of Jesus and said, righteous, holy, redeemed, forgiven. That should then inform how we treat each other, because there is level ground at the cross. I am not farther along than you are at the cross, all equal. So that division that Paul's talking about comes at the cross. So all those other things we can divide about, uh, they are important, but they are not essential. They are not of eternal consequence. There will be those who respond to the the cross in a way that says, I believe this is salvation. Uh, Just like we see up here, I believe in this. I repent. God, would you save me? But there will be those who see it as foolish, who see the way of Jesus as just just nonsense, and they reject it. There's a very different uh, future ahead of those people. And so Paul said there is that dividing line. So make sure when you draw the line, it's the one that the cross draws. Then he's going to go on in this chapter to kind of piece out what that camp of Christians ought to look like. And he's dealing with what we're going to call kind of spiritual infants and spiritual adults. And the distinction, because most often, as he kind of wraps up the the section on disunity, most often disunity comes out of immaturity. We just don't know better. Or if we do know better, we're not acting like we know better. So go ahead and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter. 3, we're going to dig through uh, this chapter together and see what God would speak to us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So Paul has just had a very a difficult conversation with them in chapters one and chapter two. And he says, I, I want to sit down to dinner with you and talk like man to man, adult to adult. But the reality is you're not ready for it. You're just not there. You're not mature enough. And he, he begins to kind of um, almost sharply cut at them a little bit and says, you're acting like, like babies. right? Like you, you shouldn't be on the bottle in the crib anymore. You should be up. You should be doing things that we would expect from a mature believer. And as he he walks through this, I'm struck by this, probably because I have children, but I'm getting this mental picture um, of my 15-day-old baby in diapers and a bottle. It's kind of cute, all right? Maybe I'm biased. It's kind of a cute picture. My 15-month-old in a diaper, still pretty cute, all right? If there's a 25-year-old in my house in diapers, that's less cute. I'm not changing that diaper, all right? And so that's what Paul's saying. He says, it just doesn't It doesn't even look right. As I look in on the church, you should know better than this. And he he just he kind of lays out this idea that it's kind of hard to grasp sometimes, hard to grasp because we think it's a time thing. See, spiritual maturity isn't a time thing. It's a commitment of the heart. See, what David said in chapter 1 and what Paul, excuse me, what David talked about in chapter 1 that Paul wrote was this idea that when you come to Jesus, yes, there is complete grace. You are forgiven. You are given a position of holiness. So Christ has called you holy. You have been given his holiness, his righteousness, his good deeds. The reality is when God found us, we were dead in our sin. What Paul is talking about is this process of here is the moment of salvation. And after that moment, because of what Jesus has done for you, there ought to be these steps daily, because the mercies of God are new every morning, that we move closer to the position God has given us in the practice of our life. Now, I've met some people who've been in the faith for 20 years who aren't there or aren't as far as perhaps they should be. And I've met some people just a couple years into the faith who are farther ahead than some people. So, what are the metrics? Like, how do you define, how do you distinguish spiritual maturity? That's the question I ask you, and Paul's going to answer that for us here. Verse 3, he says, You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? I bet you if I asked you uh, that question and you answered spiritual maturity, um, you're probably gonna say something along the lines of like, well, they know a lot about the Old Testament and um, they, they pray pretty well. Like that would be spiritual maturity. Immaturity, you know, I don't know, maybe they were cussing. I and mean, they, you know, they're like Christians don't cuss or we shouldn't, right? Like um, they said something weird about the Bible which told me they didn't know and like they just used the wrong name. Like there's all these peripheral things that we would call somebody spiritually immature. But Paul says, The metric he's using is that there's jealousy and quarreling among them. He says, I can tell by the way you're fighting. I can tell by the way you're backbiting. I can tell by the way you're gossiping. I can tell by the way you're just being mean to each other that you're not mature. You're not there yet. And what's interesting is Paul is writing this letter only about three years after the church was planted. There wasn't Jesus. uh, Jesus wasn't there, or the word of God wasn't there before. So these are all less than three-year-old Christians. And Paul's saying, I kind of expected better of you by now. Ooh. And as you read this, it kind of sticks a little bit because, I mean, after all, a little jealousy. I mean, let's be honest. We've all looked over and saw what somebody pulled in and thought, man, wouldn't it be nice if I had to go to the parts store every time I had to leave the house for my car? (laughs) We've all looked over at that relationship dynamic and said, man, wouldn't it be awesome if my marriage was like that? We've all looked over at that person of influence and just said, man, I would just love, right? Like we, we've all been there. We all have quarrels, we all have disagreements. All, and, and so what's easy to do is to say, well, isn't it human? Isn't it just human to do that? And that's exactly Paul's point. He said, are you not acting like mere humans? And here's his point, we're not mere humans. If you have called on the name of Christ and you have surrendered your life to salvation, what Paul is saying is that you have been found You have been forgiven, you have been set free, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, you've been given the community to live life differently, you've been commissioned to go do the good works that God has called you to. You're not mere humans. So the standard for maturity for believers is not the same as maturity for the world. Why? Because we've been brought back to life by Christ. And so he says we shouldn't be looking like the world, but the reality is we are. See, Bible knowledge isn't equated with spiritual maturity. Knowing facts, church attendance isn't. This is. Spiritual maturity is most clearly seen by how we treat each other, not by how much knowledge we have. Paul says you can know a lot of things. He's going to go on later on in the book to say knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And his point is that you can know facts, and those facts are information. But the thing about information is that it's meant to inform How we live. And if that information is not informing our actions, our behavior, and our reactions, it's just useless knowledge. Now, is learning important? Absolutely. That's why we have starting point running right now. That's why we have small groups. That's why we run classes and do discipleship. Because we think um, without knowledge, you will be in trouble. But that knowledge has to lead somewhere. So if I were to ask you this morning, if you were to look in on your life, would you be considered spiritually mature by the standards that Paul sets in 1 Corinthians? With the way which you treat people, somebody could look at in on your life and say, that person is mature, not because of what they know, but because how they treated people. Now, does that mean we don't have hard conversations? Absolutely, we have hard conversations. We're going to deal with that. But it means we don't overcomplicate what it means to move along the process to look more like Jesus and less like us. They tried to consistently overcomplicate it in Jesus' day. and In fact, some of the teachers of the law, the religious people, tried to corner him to say, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, verse 36. And then says, what's what's the greatest commandment? The question really is, how do I look more spiritual than the people around me because I follow these rules? That's really the heart of the question they're asking. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Verse 38. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments now you've heard these passages i'm sure but here's what he said it's not that hard <laughs> to move from here to here is simply that you would one of two things you would love god and we love to overcomplicate that you can go and throw that out there right, love god what does that mean oh it's this feeling i get when i'm praying like, no that, that is a feeling around god's love but f- First, John tells us very clearly to love God is to obey Him. It, it's not complicated. Here, here's what He says Let's do. It. Is it hard? Yes. <laughs> Have you been given the Spirit's power to do it? Yes. But that's simply what it means that we would just obey God's word. That is spiritual maturity. The second is that we would love others. And that seems really complicated, but it's really simple that we'd get along with people, that we'd be kind, we'd be compassionate, we'd be truthful, we'd be honest. We'd be gentle. We'd be all the marks of the Holy Spirit. See, we 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 can make it so much. And I think this is what actually made some of my journey to faith difficult was because I was surrounded by people who claimed to be spiritually mature, had been in the faith for a long time, knew Bible verses, wore Bible verses. They weren't tattoos because that wasn't allowed back then, but they wore Bible verses on jewelry. And their lives were full of quarreling and tension and division and disunity and gossip and backbiting. And I looked in going, what? Has Jesus really changed you? And it wasn't until I saw these things in scripture for myself that said those things aren't the markers that God looks on. These are the things that God looks in on. These are the things that show a transformed life. And so Paul's going to jump back into uh, the kind of main issue that they're dealing with, with disunity, which was the rivalry of leaders. He says this in verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed; Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants is the one, and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God, or we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. His point is that, listen, you've made all of this tension and disunity around us, and um, we're nothing. See, one of the things that can get kind of weird is that it wasn't even the leaders who were causing this tension of trying to gain uh, people for themselves. It was the people drawing divisions around the leaders. And, and Paul says, we're just servants. W- we're not anything special. We can't save you. I can't save you. And a-, a leader can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. He says, we're, we're servants, we're co-workers, we're happy to work together for God to do this, but he, he says, take us, off, um, take us off the pedestal and take us off the chopping block. We don't belong there, we're servants and in need of extreme grace. And he's gonna go on, we don't have time to cover it. He's gonna go on in the next section to basically say, like, um, the church leader is coming under double judgment. Um, it talks about this idea that um, we be gracious to leaders because um, God sees everything, <laughs> And if it's done with the wrong motives, it'll be burned up. So would you just see us in the right place? Now, here's why this is important. And we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but I want to add this. There's kind of this pendulum with leadership, be it church, be it in your job, be it in the nation. There's this pendulum of extreme, unbridled, blind loyalty. I follow this leader and it doesn't matter what they do or what they say or how they act or how they react, I'm in. Why? Because they agree with me on most things. So whatever they do, they're not wrong right? We've all seen it. We've all witnessed it. Maybe you've even been a part of it. Just unquestioned loyalty. And then the other side of that pendulum is um, no matter what they do, what they say, or how they say it, they're the worst leader ever. It doesn't matter if it was a good plan. It wasn't my plan, or it wasn't in my party plan, or it wasn't in my friend circle plan, so it's a bad idea, right? There's this extreme swing, and Paul says that pendulum is going to split the church. If you could bring this to the center of grace, to in that leader, This leader, that leader, is in need of just as much grace as I am. Fully capable of sin, just as I am. Tempted in every way that you are. In need of grace. The reason this is important is because church disunity will happen in one of two ways. It will happen with conflict with leadership. Or conflict amongst believers. Either there's something the leader did and you're not willing to have a conversation around it. Or there's some disagreements among you. Now those disagreements often don't take place in this building because you're all in your best behavior when you're here because it's a church after all. But they take place in the hallways, at the workplace, text messages, Facebook. And what is it? It's a pathway for the enemy to come in and divide what God has brought together. Are they important issues? Absolutely. Do conversations need to happen around them? Probably, maybe not, but probably. And when they do, when conflict happens, as it inevitably will, where people are, conflict exists, we need to commit to something. It's what we've committed to as a staff at Bridgewater. Uh, We say it all the time, um, all the time we say it, and we hold each other to it, and it's simply this. We talk to people, not about them. We talk to people, not about them. So you can imagine in a room full of people with lots of ideas and lots of passion that those ideas and passions don't always end up on the same page. So so what do you do in your marriage when your idea and in your way doesn't match their idea? Right? Well, we talk to people, not about them. So this is what it looks like for us. We're in a meeting, a decision is made, and maybe somebody didn't really like how the decision went down. Here's what we don't do. We don't walk over to our friend's office, knock on the door and say, did you hear what they said? Can you, do you believe that? No, no, no. We go and we knock on their door. We come in not with accusations, but with questions saying, hey, um, can you help me understand how we got there? I thought we were headed this way in this decision, but we ended up over here. Can, can you walk me through how we got there? All right, so let's bring this into your house. Getting a little spat or a disagreement with your significant other. Who's the first phone call? Your mom? Texting your friend, I can't believe they did it again. You call in their mom, like you call in the Trump card, you call in their mom. <laughs> Listen, don't say it doesn't happen. Or do we pause, and go back to the Lord? All right, God, help my heart here. There's conflict. This is important I handle right. You walk back to that individual and say, hey, I, I think I missed something. Uh, I, I got to own something here, right? can you help me understand where where you're coming from in this decision? And you know what happens? Either there was a total misunderstanding that you both could have had a huge blow up over when you just misunderstood where you put the raisins. Or, that's not a real story. I knew you were going to go there. It's not a real story. It's not a real story. Or what happens is you have a wonderful conversation where you dig deep into the things that you've been avoiding for a long time. And all of a sudden, what could have been a moment of fracture was a moment of mending. This is what Paul's talking about. And we take this seriously as a church. I strive to take this seriously in a marriage and in my friendships. Um, we take it so seriously that if somebody comes to us or in leadership comes to us and say, hey, I want to talk about so-and-so, we'll say, nope, you don't. Did you have a conversation with them yet? No. Okay, well, I'm not them. Go talk to them. If you can't figure it out, come back and talk. That's how seriously we take it. And here's, here's why. First Corinthians chapter three. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, he's not talking about this building. He says, it's not, it's not about the church building. And I think churches have missed that in, in the last century. It, it's not about you just running through the halls and breaking something. He says, you, the body, me, together with you, we are God's temple. The Holy Spirit is in our midst. And he says, when you begin to backbite and gossip and do all of these things, you're, you're doing it to yourself. You're not throwing rocks at somebody else's house. You're throwing rocks at your own house. In your marriage, when you're throwing rocks at your significant other, you're not throwing rocks at them. You're throwing rocks at your own union. It says you're damaging yourself because the two shall become one. But here's what's, what's terrifying. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. I don't know what that means. The Bible is not clear on what that means. But I'm clear on one thing. I don't want to find out. I don't want to be the one that they're like, oh, that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is talking about. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Now we all know, right? Like, I don't don't want to. And that's why we have to take unity so seriously. Paul, in another letter to a man named Titus, who was uh, taking care of a church on Crete that Paul had planted, he says this to them, dealing with a similar problem. He says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Verse 11. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. It's not even a three-strike policy for Paul. It's a two-strike policy. Why? Because he knows that if the seed of division and disunity gets into any sort of relationship, he's explicitly talking about churches here, it will destroy not only what God is doing, but it will destroy the testimony to the world out there. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But these are heavy words. What it informs us is that we can't take unity seriously enough. It also tells me that it's not going to happen by chance. We have to make effort towards this. Why? Because we believe that we want the name of Christ to be without repute. And that's up to how we, we treat each other. He continues on in verse 18. He says, Do not deceive yourselves. It's easy to think false unity right? Well, we fight less than that other couple does. So, you know, we're doing all right. Right, babe? We don't really need to talk about this, right? Like, This says, don't deceive yourselves. Huh? We might fight less than the church you were part of last time. Okay, well, that doesn't necessarily mean we're walking in the unity God has called us to. this says, don't be deceived. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become Wise and he's hearkening back to the earlier chapter where he says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world, and he's talking about the cross. He says if you think you've arrived, you think you've missed or you're better than or whatever, be foolish. What he means is go back to the cross. Come back and sit in front of the gospel of Jesus and be there and see how it informs alive. See, there's two postures that will happen in any conflict. Wherever it is, whatever level, there's two postures, and here here they are. The mature Christian practices mirror gazing rather than finger pointing. The mature Christian practices mirror gazing rather than finger pointing. In, In every conflict, there is an opportunity to put one of these on. Did you see what they said? Did you hear what she did? If you knew what she said when you left the room, you see where I saw him last night? Yeah, I saw him over there too, right? Like we think it looks like this, or maybe even like this. I'd just I would just like to pray for them. What it looks like to the Lord is this, and honestly, what it looks like to the world around is this. And you can see it when you're talking to a couple that's in strife. It's just a bunch of he said, she said. Well, if you knew what they, it's immaturity. Paul says, the mature believer is going to go, all right, let's put it down. Let's grab the mirror of God's word. And I might be angry, I might be fired up, and I might even be right. But let me go back to the word. What do I need to own? Was I rude? Was I untruthful? Was there gossip? Was I rough? Um, Was I cold? God, would you reveal it in my life? God, would you show me in your word? Would I look in the mirror and deal with me? And from there, the courageous move of walking across the room and saying, man, the word of God has revealed to me I was wrong. I reacted poorly. I I said what I shouldn't have said. Would you forgive me? Now, they may have blown off the handle, and you might have just done a little bit. And that's where maturity comes in because their percentage and your percentage, they don't matter. What do I own? And then, and this is where it's important, in that conflict, you invite the other individual to come look at the mirror with you. You don't look in the mirror and say, okay, now I did my part and start picking that back up. Like it's really hard to hold this and this at the same time. I'm sorry, can we pray together? Can we talk about this? Do you see how different that is? So Here's what I want to do for us this morning. I want to give you some space to do just that. I want to give you some space to, to put down the finger pointing and just to sit with the Lord, to sit with the mirror of his perfect law. We're going to take some time to partake of communion together and the band's going to come up. They're going to play a song. But communion is important because it is that space that God has asked us to routinely remember to pause Before you go on to lunch, before you try to find the raisins, before you do any of that, would you pause and say, all right, God, would you reveal anywhere in me that has gone awry? Would you show me any conflict that I'm in that I need to deal with? Would you show me anybody that I've hurt that I need to have a conversation with? Maybe it's just thoughts or intentions or uh, ill will that you've been thinking towards that we would pause and say, all right, God, would you reveal this to me? So I want to give you a few minutes. The band's going to play behind us. I just want you to sit and think. And here's um, another piece. If you're here and you're not a believer, um, later on in 1 Corinthians, it's going to tell us that if you're not a believer, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, to let the cup pass. Um, But I have a question for you in this process. Have you been holding the, the pointed finger at God for a long time? Have you been blaming God for your situations? Have you been blaming God for your circumstances? Have you not been looking in the mirror that your own choices have gotten you to where you need to be? And perhaps would you put down that finger of accusation against God, look in the mirror and see what God would speak to you in your situation. I'll be back up in a few minutes to partake together. What communion reminds us is that no matter where you are in this process, whether you've been in the faith for five minutes or or 50 years, we're all in need of and all have access to the same grace. That we all have opportunity to be worldly. We all have opportunity to, to miss the mark and that is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus so beautiful. Is that when we miss, we don't have to beat ourselves up because Christ took the beating that was ours we don't have to punish ourselves because Christ took the punishment that was ours. And that would inform and instruct how we treat each other, how we love one another. Jesus, in his last meal with his disciples, he took the bread. You go ahead and peel that top layer off. He took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, meaning this is the punishment. This was where God could have pointed the finger at you and instead he pointed the finger at himself and took what was rightfully yours upon himself so that you could be free. Do this in remembrance. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, This is the blood of my new covenant, which means you don't get to the place of maturity because you tried hard. You get to the place of maturity because Christ has transformed you. Because Christ has done that work in you. Do this and remembrance. kind of closing this section I just have some final thoughts for us as we're going to wrap up this conversation of unity Um, here it is the unity of the church is your responsibility the unity of the church is your responsibility if you call Bridgewater home meaning if you're coming back here next week or if you're visiting from another church and you're going to go back there next week wherever God has called you to be it is your responsibility to work for the unity of that body I play a part, but it's not without you. Here's what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Since This doesn't happen by mistake. This happens by the people of God taking the unity of God's church seriously, that we would make every effort in our relationships in this building and our relationships out of this building. So my question for us as we close is are we making every effort to pursue unity in our homes and in this home? Maybe today you need to go have a conversation with somebody and put down the finger, pick up the mirror, and make peace with them. Maybe there's a leader that you need to take off the chopping block for a decision or or whatever, that you take them off the chopping block. Maybe there's a leader you need to take off the pedestal and view them rightly. I, I don't know what it is for you this morning, but whatever it is, could you have the courage to make the unity of God's church important? Would you stand and sing the service out with us today?